All the great bars in the world have a story to tell about where they are. Schooner Wharf, in my hometown of Key West, tells you this is a town that likes to blur the lines between sea and land, between breakfast and happy hour. Pocha 32 in Manhattan tells a story about how Koreans run this town and how their stuffed squids and scorpion bowls full of soju are the soul food of New York's future. Mida Bar in the middle of Berlin, where I met foreign correspondent Simon Schuster back in January for beers before we biked through the city to go record this episode. Well, Mida Bar tells a story about Berlin as a city that is always getting lost in time. It's a story of candlelit corners, stained wood, jazz playing on vinyl, regulars reading a broadsheet newspaper in the flickering light. It's a museum of a moment, or a collage of moments, from Berlin's most romantic pasts. It's also the perfect backdrop to start a conversation that we had about, among other things, the East and geopolitical intrigue, about immigration and war, and about that ultimate throwback, real journalism done well. This is Nathan Thornburg, and from Roads and Kingdoms, you're listening to The Trip, drinking with exceptional people around the world. I know you have this in you. If you got closer to the mic, you yeah. would also sound like the Moscow-born Barry White that you are. Oh, yeah. <laughs> See? That's good. <laughs> Man, this is, this is what I think I sound like when I sing in the shower. <laughs> I've not had the pleasure of being able to fact check that. <laughs> you have something you'd like to sing for us? Well, now it's mostly like the anthem from Peppa Pig because I, I have that just looping in my mind because I have a, a two-year-old, as you know. This is uh, one of the underrated, very fucked up things about kids is they colonize our information diet in ways that you just can't escape. Fortunately, we, were, we had children after the age of Barney, but I can only imagine the untold suffering of parents in the in the 90s yeah we didn't really have that because I, I spent those those formative years in the soviet union there was a half hour cartoon program uh that you watched in the evening before going to bed uh called Nupagadi, which which was great it's about a a, a chain smoking wolf that chases around i think it's a rabbit uh and anyway it's great great cartoon was this like a political allegory in the soviet times or maybe maybe recently they actually banned uh cartoon characters that smoke so they had to sort of photoshop out the cigarette from the wolf's mouth in this classic soviet cartoon anyway different story um but i i don't really there there wasn't a, a theme song that really lodged in my mind in the same way that i remember and uh, my daughter has not watched uh, the soviet cartoons so much we tried to get the soviet uh, winnie the pooh which is a classic and fantastic. But uh, uh, who, who and what is the Soviet Winnie the Pooh's name? Winnie Pooh. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it stuck for a little while, but uh, she quickly moved on to the um, the hypnotic allure of of Peppa Pig, which just you know seems to just just completely devour the minds of young children. We've outed you as uh, as Soviet born already, but I I have to tell the story of how I I met you, which to me is just I. I still find totally delightful. We were looking for a Moscow correspondent for Time magazine. This is back in 
fuck nuts i don't know 2000 2009 nine something and uh I, I think i'd been to moscow once or twice looking and you know had some people who didn't quite work out and then uh i got you on skype from new york and you and i started to have this conversation and we had uh i think you were working at reuters at the time something yeah, like that I, or I it just left stopped. and gone freelance yeah and uh we, we were having this really good conversation you know and it's like all right well here's an american dude who has found his way to moscow and, and somehow in the middle of the conversation you i think you said yeltsin but you said it like a real fucking russian <laughs> you were like yeltsin <laughs> yeltsin or <laughs> something and i was like wait a second is this guy russian so i asked you i was like are you are you actually russian you know because it's very hard to uh I'd spent many years trying to be able to say Yeltsin like a Russian. I never even got close. So uh, you said, well, yeah, actually, I was born in Moscow, and then I moved to California. And then me, like an asshole, I was like, you didn't go to Lowell High School by any chance, did you? Which is a very presumptive question, because in, yeah. my, in my, you know, sort of uh, blinkered worldview, every Russian who came to California in the 1990s... Uh, <laughs> went to Lowell High School. It's, mm -hmm. it's my school, and it was fucking full of Russians. Um, and, uh, and of course, uh, that guess happened to be right. I think you said something like, how, how did you know? Yeah, <laughs> the chances said, of that. Yeah, I yeah. said, well, I guess I've sort of a slightly racist guess. Um, yeah, I mean, we, we did have a Russian community at Lowell. There was even a Russian corner uh, where we all hung out and weirdly played hacky sack, even though that's not really a stereotypical Russian thing to do. You guys were Californians now. Yeah, we were. We had really assimilated, at least in that sense. We did other Russian things like wear Adidas pants with leather jackets, um, but while playing hacky sack. Anyway, but it wasn't a big community. There were, there were other high schools in the area that had many, many more Russians. That is true. Most it, of my friends went, yeah. It's probably just outsized in my mind because that's why I started studying Russian was because they offered it and it seemed cool. And they only offered it because there were so many Russian kids. And right, yes. That's how I ended up in Moscow. And then it just kind of set this chain reaction. So it's this very funny thing where you had gone to my high school and then you went to the same college I did. And you're mm -hmm. much younger and handsomer than I. But you came along that path and now you're living in Berlin where I used to live. And also the Time Magazine connection. I sort of followed you into Time Magazine. Right. I forgot the punchline, which is you were great and we hired you and you have since become a star of international reporting and uh, a, a mainstay at Time Magazine, which, you know, I had left uh, very long ago. So you, you know, continue to kind of do my life and just do it better. Although here we are in this uh, fucking gorgeous and inexpensive apartment that you have in the center of Berlin, not far from the uh, TV tower, and you're leaving all of it behind, all of this, uh, all of this life you've built, you're just throwing it in the, uh, in, in the bin. That's right. I guess in a couple of months, we'll know whether I, um, uh, regret it deeply, but, uh, it, it's kind of a new adventure. In two weeks, we're moving my wife and daughter and I to New York city. We'll be a lot closer to you. Um, I'll still be at time magazine, but in, in a slightly new role, still working a lot on, uh, investigations, but kind of with a more global reach, not just focusing on Trump-Russia, Trump-Ukraine, but uh, Trump-Venezuela or whatever the hell. Yeah, we, we do a fairly good job, I think, on this show of avoiding Trump, which is somewhat unavoidable, but, you know, I try not to pollute my thoughts, uh, you know, too much with the, Wise. <laughs> all of this. Um, however, this is, you know, this is one of the great laments, I think, of foreign correspondents generally these days is that, you know, it's hard to attract American attention 
to overseas issues if they're not directly Trump related because there's so much visceral electric energy around the mention of his name and people will either hate read what you did or love read it. But I can't imagine anyone for whom that's been more true than you. Back in 2009 when you and I talked about Russia and about covering the former uh, Soviet republics and all of the work you ended up doing, none of us imagined that you would actually be at the heart of domestic U.S. politics uh, on this beat. That's right. I was expecting to have quite a calm year in 2016 because the U.S. elections were coming up. I thought, you know, this is going to have nothing to do with my beat, and I can sort of work on some long-term features and projects uh, while most of the magazine is full of U.S. election coverage. Uh, and sure enough, you know, uh, very quickly... Uh, I mean, already R- Russia Gate. Yeah, yeah, Paul, Paul Manafort yeah. was kind of you know lurking already. By by the fall, it was clear that that was not going to happen, and, and I, I began getting you know constant requests for reporting and information, and even just explanations of various characters and uh, arms of the Russian state and how they function and how they uh, interlink with with others. So it was it was a great place to be in in, in a in a professional sense because my um, the expertise that I'd been building up for by that point, maybe seven, eight years covering Russia was in high demand. Uh, but it, it essentially made me um, a, a part of the D.C. Bureau, uh, sitting in Berlin, but, but answering to uh, the D.C. coverage of the Mueller investigation and, and everything around that. And now, uh, just as that came to a close, uh, we now have the impeachment inquiry and the impeachment process now moving into the Senate, uh, having to do with Ukraine, another country very near and dear to my heart, where half half or more than half of my family comes from, um, and that I've also been covering since right around 2009, 2010, uh, quite intensively. And uh, and again, my sort of knowledge of that country is smack in the middle of, of uh, Washington drama. So I, I can't complain. Um, it, it's It's been a good place to be, but um, demanding. How important is it that Americans understand the particular style of kind of power and governance in the in Russia and, and Ukraine to understand like what the kind of the group that's kind of hovering around our administration is up to? Like it, it feels like specifically Ukrainian and specifically Russian the way that, you know, the way that Trump uses power even. Yeah, I think it is important to understand, you know, the the style of. Uh, wheeling and dealing that has really uh, worked both in the Ukrainian context, the Russian context, and uh, now in the in the Trump White House, they they all have this kind of um, wise guy approach to interpersonal relationships, to politics. Nothing is based on institutions. Nothing is based on um, rules. It's all sort of papanyatium, as as the Russians say. So uh, things that are understood, things that should be understood, uh, unwritten rules. Um, and, and this is important to understand the kind of informality of the relationships and, and how uh, these things function and how that's allowed various players in Ukraine and Russia to kind of uh, intertwine themselves with uh, various parts of, of Trump's kind of world. Just because they naturally, that style of deal making, if somebody comes to somebody in Trump's world or, or in his administration and says, hey, I can make a problem go away for you or some, you know, something. Exactly. Then, yeah. then they're much more likely to get an audience uh, in this administration, say, than yeah. um, some some rather lawyerly administrations past. Yeah, and, and people have been people who've been covering Russia and, and Putin's regime uh, for you know well before Trump came to power um, have seen this play out 
uh, in, under Putinism. That is basically one good definition of Putinism, uh, the, the kind of informal relationships that are much closer to a mafia family than to uh, a, a government or yeah. some hybrid of the two. And, and uh, you know, to watch that play out uh, in, in the ways that the Trump administration has, has tried to m remake American government in its own image uh, really mirrors and, and echoes uh, what Putin has been doing since 2000 in Russia. Yeah. I mean, although I, I always find myself as someone who had kind of gotten out of the Russian coverage game, but had obviously lived there and cares about the place a lot, I always found it a little strange, the kind of almost vilification of, of Russia as this external, you know, kind of boogeyman that had, had kind of come and brought its evil ways, you know, either, either by trying to attack the electoral system, which of course they did try to, but, you know, just more generally that they are a great threat to the states. Yeah, and that, that has been consistent throughout my time in Russia. So I moved to Moscow to work as a reporter in 2006. Uh, and even then, you know, I was working at the, the Moscow Times, an English language paper uh, at first, and then moved to Reuters and then uh, freelance and Associated Press and so on. And throughout, all the editors I, I worked with, both the ones who were sitting in the U.S. Uh, and, and the, the Westerners who were editors in Moscow, um, had this sort of deep fascination with the place. They weren't just sort of passing through because it was another posting for them if they were based in Moscow. They saw it as, as a sort of pow powerful and fascinating um, society, a political context that they had sort of you know dreamed of covering all their lives. And that fascination, um, I, I quickly understood, was rooted in the Cold War. Um, most of them were of the generation that they at least lived through that, you know, we've all seen the Hollywood movies depicting it, and Russia still holds this very peculiar place um, in, in the American, uh, in many ways, the European imagination. Uh, and, and the effect on me most, most directly and, and maybe superficially was that it was very easy to sell stories. As a freelance reporter from Moscow, I mean, it's like hotcakes. They, you, you can sell stories that would never have, have uh, been accepted from a city, even, you know, like uh, Tokyo or Delhi, things that the Moscow mayor was up to, right? Um, like there was this weird story about him trying to seed the clouds so that it wouldn't rain on the Victory Day parade one year, and, and Time Magazine took a story about that. I mean, it's a bit weird, but it, I think the fact that it was Russia and sort of weird things Russian, Russians do is this kind of particular vertical <laughs> or category in the minds of American uh, journalism that, that has lived on. And it, it's, it's been, of course, amplified uh, un, under, under Trump because of all the scandals. They talk about that with like weird Japan, you know, that that's this, this is very specific, but it, 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 it's a, it's its own thing in Russia because it's weird, you know, laced with menace. Mm -hmm. you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. But I also always found that, you know, Russians having been there also in the mid nineties when some of this shit was evolving in, in, in the bad ways, uh, I, I think that they actually learned a lot from us and all of this, you know, kind of kleptocratic nonsense that seems to have ricocheted back to the states a lot of it came from you know u.s consultants advisors they just kind of took those brute lessons of capitalism and like went real hard with them <laughs> they're like stripping out all the bullshit niceties and pieties and just going right at this thing yeah exactly it, it came very often as you said directly not just sort of watching from a distance and taking certain rules on board but with 
American consultants inside the Kremlin actually, you know, kind of giving advice on how to run a country, but Russians applying that to their peculiar realities and, and a certain element of chaos that existed in the 90s that, that sort of um, warped the face of, of the society that the American consultants were trying to build and made it um, a, a, a bit more sinister. Yeah, and we're kind of reaping the rewards. But it's always, I think, particularly to uh, all of my dear uh, friends at the front of the battle on the left, you know, it's always instructive to just say, listen, it's not, it's, it's really not Russia. Like, unfortunately, we have to kind of look in the mirror and see how, how mm -hmm. it could be that we've, uh, you know, that we've gladly elected a sort of quasi-mafia state <laughs> to the White House. How objective do you have to be? Um, your, your job is to investigate and sort of find the facts. Some of them look a little damning, I guess, for various parts of the administration. Do you, do you worry about objectivity in that classic Time Magazine sense of, of being able to say, well, on the one hand, but on the other? Yeah, very much so. Um, I, I think that that has changed in the context of the sort of whole fake news uh, debate that, that President Trump either started or, or, or accelerated. Um, and, you know, it's affected us in a few ways. So objectivity to me uh, has come to mean more uh, get better sources and more of them. So if, if you're uh, producing information, you got to make sure that it's uh, nailed down. Um, and if you do have, have news, you have to present it in a very kind of buttoned down and straightforward way. And then it comes time for analysis, right? Um, af after you put the news out there in, in a very kind of neutral um, tone, then you can go in and, and say, okay, this is what this means for, for Trump. This, this is sort of why this is happening and, and go a bit deeper um, in, in the magazine, for example. But in covering the news, yeah, I, I think in, in the context uh, that we're living in now where everything is so quickly politicized, there is really something to be said for if you do happen to get some exclusive information that is relevant to the political context, you got to present it in a, in a pretty cold, um, just the facts, ma'am, kind of kind of way. And I, I support that approach, and it's it's the approach that editors uh, in in D.C. and New York have been taking um, on Trump coverage, especially because you'll have no shortage of people who will be able to sound whatever alarm they want to sound based on what you found. Yeah, uh, and, and I think it, it undermines the the value and impact of the information that you're providing if you put a slant on it right off the bat. And I think also you, I mean, some of my favorite work that you've done in the, in the recent past certainly has been stuff that, that it's not exactly counter narrative because again, I don't think you're approaching it that way, but they're telling you something that is a little different than what screaming people on Twitter would like to talk about. I, mm -hmm. I'm thinking particularly the interview with uh, the, the leader of Ukraine who you know, made a very emphatic case to you that uh, he would like to just stay the fuck out of American mm -hmm. politics if I'm, yeah. you know, giving the Cliff's Notes versions of that. So tell me, tell me about that interview and, and how you got it and, and what it meant to you. Well, uh, I, the way I got it, um, I think it, it's hard to know how they, how they, you know, choose what journalists to, to engage with um, more or less, but I, I, began to develop a relationship with, with uh, President Zelensky's administration during his election campaign back in March when he was uh, just a kind of scrappy comedian who was running this really kind of long shot campaign for the presidency. I mean, you went to some of his gigs, right? Like right. he did some yeah. stand up or cabaret shit. But the gigs were, were the campaign. He wasn't doing any debates. 
He wasn't really engaging in, in one-on-one interviews with journalists, uh, I think ever, uh, during the campaign. Uh, he had no platform. He, he made very vague promises of basically, leave it to me, we'll figure it out. Uh, most of his re- responses to pretty serious questions involved a wisecrack of some sort. Uh, and his campaign uh, megaphone was his comedy show, uh, both a sitcom that he had on TV in which he actually played a, a fictional uh, Ukrainian president, uh, and even more so, I think, in, in the imagination of the Ukrainian people, his variety show, um, which is a sort of a format that doesn't so much exist anymore in the U.S., but it, it's sort of old-school, 50s-style vaudeville, a whole lot of it, uh, mixed in with some of what you call might, might call stand-up, but it's, it's sort of weird stand-ups, things that would seem quite outdated to um, the uh, American or, or Western comedy consumers. We're talking about a lot of go-go dancers, a lot of slapstick, uh, you know, a lot of singing. And, and he was touring the show uh, at a time when, as a normal candidate, he would have been traveling the country on his tour, on his campaign bus, and, and uh, talking to voters. So I spent um, a good bit of time behind stage of his comedy show, meeting uh, his a lot of the members of his uh, often hard-drinking troupe. Uh, and and was it literally like the carnies that ended up being in his administration? It, it was, yeah, it was exactly like that. It was the traveling circus of, of politics. Uh, but they were totally apolitical. Like you, you uh, there was one guy I remember I, I, I met backstage, an old friend of, of uh, Zelensky's. Um, and a comedian in his troupe, um, and he sort of finished a couple of his um, bits in in the show, came backstage, pulled a, a, a bottle of um, uh, uh, whiskey out of his uh, backpack and just began, you know, taking shots. And we were talking, like, so just sort of shooting the shit. And, and I said, you know, what 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 uh, ministerial post would you like? And he was like, Man, you know, I, I don't know, I'm not really angling for that, but if he gives me the defense ministry, I'll fucking go in there and clean some shit out. And you know, and this was sort of their their approach to to <laughs> the campaign. You often got the feeling that they weren't taking it very seriously. Anyway, but but through those experiences, they were kind enough to let me in there, often with a photographer, just to kind of hang out. You know, uh, and and I think they did that because I wasn't really um, elbow, el- elbowing my way into an interview. I wasn't demanding a sit down formal interview with him because I, I saw that he's not that kind of candidate. He's yeah. just, that's not the way he, he does business. And, you know, doing shots with the next minister of defense, uh, yeah. presumably uh, in the back of the cabaret is way better, way than, better the, right. than the sit down. It makes the, a uh, better story and it builds a relationship that, that then led into the, to the interview that, that you, you mentioned, um, you know, where I already had sort of relationships when, when they uh, took office, um, his uh, press shop, which you know, came out of the comedy troupe. The whole, the whole, uh, the whole administration came out of the comedy troupe. This is amazing. This feels like you know Gary Steingart should have written this whole yeah. thing. It's yeah, it's, it's astonishing. It's, it's bizarre to observe. Really, I mean, Steingart. Uh, it would have been his his masterpiece if he had if he had had the the imagination to come up with it. But it, it's such a wild story. But through that, you know, I, I developed good relationships with with his administration and. Uh, when they felt they had something to say, uh, namely as they uh, went into their first peace negotiations with Russia uh, back in December, so last month, um, they uh, called up a few journalists, uh, one from Poland, one from France, one from Germany, and uh, me from the U.S., uh, and, or from the English-speaking world. Um, 
And uh, we sat down and, and they wanted to talk about the, uh, the peace negotiations, the war in East Ukraine, the status of that, what Zelensky wanted to accomplish. But of course, the conversation veered into various things, including impeachment and Trump and, and, and all of that, um, which he wasn't so keen to talk about, but he, he didn't dodge the questions either. And I, I think it was, it was interesting because it presented, I mean, his, his main case, as I you know, kind of read it from your piece, was, by the way, all of you people barking at each other back in the States, Ukraine is a sovereign country. We're trying to do our sovereign shit. We still are at war. <laughs> we would like to figure that out. You know, kind of all of just the, the hierarchy of things that go above, you know, his desire to be a, a, a football punted from mm-hmm. team to team in, in the U.S. Um, yeah, and, and the way he put it was, we refuse to be a pawn on the chessboard of empires. And by empires, he meant Russia and the United States. Yeah. Uh, I mean, in fairness, Ukraine has been a pawn on the chessboard of yeah, empires. Most of its history. Yeah. Right. It's a... It's a fucking wild, uh, it's a wild place to be. Yeah, and, and in the last few months, there, there have been a couple of situations where um, the, the news has sort of forced all of the correspondents who have any experience in Ukraine to again come back to Kiev for their respective publications. And there have been these sort of uh, drinking bouts uh, in Kiev um, with all the correspondents that I've sort of ever known from the region uh, sitting around and thinking, like, how did we all wind up back here in 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 this context? This is just so surreal, uh, and and it became especially surreal amid um, the the impeachment saga, right? That Ukraine is in the middle of the third impeachment process in American uh, history, um, and you know they're somehow having to navigate this, and here we are again, sitting in this in this bar that that we sat in in 2014 when there was a revolution that also captured the world's attention. Um, what's which bar is this? Uh, yeah, there's 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 a few. The Porter Pub uh, near the Maidan uh, is. I don't want to advertise the place to, to to visitors to Kiev necessarily, but it's it's really close to the site of the revolution. It's open, I think, twenty four hours, um, and you know they serve beer and vodka. It's and, got one of those sort yeah. of blandly uh, Irish pub names that, yes. <laughs> uh, that seem to do well. I mean, well, that was that was always the jam in uh, in Moscow, Rosie O'Grady's, <laughs> wow, which yeah. is where the Moscow Times people and all the, the first journalists I ever got really hammered with. Flashback. was all there a long time ago. So when, when you land in Kiev and go to the Porter Pub and Mark McKinnon is there and, you know, just all of the people who thought they had escaped, you know, just when you right. think you're out, it starts pulling you back in again. Yeah, and, and you know, but the, the experience of it is extremely valuable. It's just uh, there are a couple of folks who um, recalled hearing from editors um, look, if, if you expect to make a career just being based in Kiev and reporting on Ukraine, Ukraine, forget about it. You're never, it's never going to happen. And, and now they can sort of, you know, uh, uh, thumb their nose at these editors and say, look at me now, right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm in demand as a, as a freelancer like I've never been. Um, but it, it, that is just a, such a weird coincidence of uh, historical events that I think we're going to look back on and, and Ukraine is going to look back on uh, for decades to come and be like, how did this happen? How did you get back to uh, the former Soviet Union? You, your parents had done a good job of making their escape. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they brought you to San Francisco. You went to an excellent uh, couple of schools. Uh, and then you went back to where they fled from. How did that happen? 
And are they mad at you? They were for a little bit, yeah. I mean, there were certainly a couple of uh, stern conversations um, that you know we tried really hard to get you out of there and now you're going back. And, and they were especially concerned because they never felt or maintained any strong connection to Russia after we left. They felt that this was just an uh, a, a unpleasant and in some ways tragic history that they would rather just leave behind and become fully integrated Americans. And they wanted that certainly for their children. Um, but where, where did they go wrong? What, what went wrong in, in your mind? I mean, you, you always uh, forsake the values of, of your, your parents as a, as a teenager. Um, so I guess for me, the fascination with Russia began, yeah, around... It never really went away, but it, it, around my teenage years, when you're sort of grasping around for an identity, um, the Russian Jewish identity was really right there on the surface, um, very clear in its symbolisms, at, at least to us at the time, you know, the kinds of clothes you wear, the kind of music you listen to. It was just sort of like a, a full package of self that you could take right off the shelf and say, I am a Russian Jewish Soviet immigrant, and I have this group of 50 hoodlum friends who are just like me, and this is us. And we don't have to go, you know, reading Goethe or whatever to, to sort of find ourselves and our, our place in the world. We are who we are. And, and that's what ended up happening when I was um, a teenager. Uh, and there's still a, a very vibrant um, community of friends I have in San Francisco. Most of them have moved out to the suburbs now, but we, we still get together and we still sort of maintain this, this very you know, Russian sense of self. What, what is that? I mean, I'm, you'd mentioned the uh, Adidas, and it, but what, what, are, what are some of the touchstones of, of the Russian Jewish crew that you roll with? It's it's the the way you party. So you know we don't do the uh, hors d'oeuvres and cocktail things. You sit around the table and there's vodka every every few seats, a bottle of vodka, and, and there's a, there's a there's a so much food that you know when you lift the plate, then there's there's nowhere to put it back down again. Um, it's it's the the loudness of the storytelling and the toast making at our celebrations. Um, it, it's a kind of partying that then when when people from outside come in and see it, they're they're quite. Uh, shocked sometimes horrified by the, the loudness and the amount of drinking that goes on um so that that's a, definitely a touchstone it's the it's a, the fluorescent lighting uh the the disco balls in the back of the yeah, yeah. restaurant I mean, yeah. It, it's also this this kind of um wheeler dealer mentality and in, in the the types of professions that that a lot of my friends from that community pursue you know the sort of import export uh, buy low, sell high, whatever it is, doesn't matter. Change professions every couple of months. Like it, it just, you know, you're always sort of looking for the next um, hot deal uh, or scheme to get into. And you're always doing it with the same sort of rotating circle of characters who are either in the Russian community or adjacent to it from other kind of ethnic communities around you'll, San you'll Francisco. You'll fuck with Armenians. You know? Yeah, Armenians, sure. Oh, Armenians are our brothers. <laughs> Um, you know, but even like, you know, the, the, the Filipino crew, for example, is very, very vibrant in San Francisco and you might, you know, have some business association with them. Uh, I'm not describing myself so much as, as my friends because, you know, as, as we've been talking about, I went in a different career path. Um, I, I decided around junior year of college that journalism was for me. Um, I just sort of my then girlfriend suggested um, if you like writing so much uh, and you're sitting in your room, you know, pretending to write short stories all the time, why don't you? do something valuable and write for the college paper. And I was like, yeah, actually, yeah, what? that's a good idea. Why didn't I think of that? And, and I did, and I wrote a couple articles for the Stanford Daily. Um, 
and just loved it. And I was like, that's it. This is me. This is what I want to do. Oh, man. I'm a noted daily hater. Uh, but you had a nice time with it, huh? I didn't. <laughs> that just struck me as like the college paper is like, uh, you know, it's like putting on a suit and tie and going to work at a job that's kind of fake. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. It, it was very much pretend. and Because and it's stressful. Yeah. You still have to go and you got to file your stories and do all this stuff. And it's like... Right. But the community is so contained, especially at a school like Stanford. It's such a bubble. Uh, and when you go and interview sources, everyone's, you know, like a university officials and professors and so on. Everyone's just sort of humoring you. Um, sometimes you get someone who's a bit nervous about what you'll write because it, it may have an impact on their reputation in the in the school. But... Um, it's generally kind of a game of pretend. Um, uh, yeah, I, I think that's, that's, that's fair to say, but I still had that sort of rush of, you know, some mini scandal breaks out and you got to rush there and you got to talk to strangers about it and it was, it ask was an, difficult questions and then write it up. It was enough of a tease to make yeah. you think like, okay, I could do this in the real world and enjoy yeah, it. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, it, it wasn't uh, hard to figure out that language is an extremely important asset in journalism. So if you're able to do an interview in a foreign language and then write about it in English, you've got an advantage over someone who cannot do that and can only conduct interviews uh, in English. And Russia is an especially unforgiving place in that sense. Because of the, the Soviet evolution of the language, it became quite convoluted and a lot was moved to between the lines. So the language sort of obscures the meaning in the way that people talk, especially in formal business or, or, or financial settings, right, or, or political settings, um, they don't say things straight out. It's, it's not American uh, in that sense where, uh, you know, you, you do generally express the meaning that you have in mind. Um, in, in Russia, it's often obfuscated. Um, Leaving and, and, much more to chance. Right. As, as a non-native speaker, you, you miss a lot of that. So it's especially important and useful. So yeah, right out of college, I um, essentially, I, I did a, a scholarship in Berlin for a year uh, and then moved basically straight to Moscow and got a job at the Moscow Times. The job interview consisted of one question. Do you speak Russian? Yes. Okay. Move here. Uh, I'll, to my credit, I had many more questions than that, but, uh, but it is, you know, it is still when you're talking about the foreign correspondent crew, I mean, it's just, it was such a different time because, you know, you used to have guys like Jay Carney who would just cycle through because Moscow was actually a, a, a good place on a, you know, kind of ambitious career ladder, uh, would go through and, and wasn't expected to be a r real Russophile or Russian speaker or anything anyway. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know, maybe Jay speaks amazing Russian, but there were so many people who were just on a path to power through Moscow mm -hmm. that they would have come through. And it's a very, it's just a different vibe having somebody who, you know, you've got to, you've had to deal with Russian and Russianness and, you know, your whole life. Yeah. But I, I'd say there's, there's sort of a generation of, of uh, journalists now working um, in the English language media um, in print and in TV, um, who are of are my generation of immigrants, right? So they moved to uh, the U.S. or or uh, the U.K. Uh, young enough that they really assimilated, um, in, and they're they're fluent, they're native uh, in every sense, either as Brits or Americans. But they were old enough when they moved that they still preserved, first of all, the language, and second, a sense of the culture. Uh, the cartoons that, that I mentioned earlier, right? A, a, a sort of touch for, for the, the meaning that's left between the lines when, when Russian is spoken uh, among uh, friends or associates. Uh, and now a, a lot of them, I mean, it's, it's not a, hundreds, but um, uh, I'd say a couple dozen certainly 
and, and at least a dozen who are good friends of mine, uh, are coming back and, and working in this space as journalists and, and writing about it and attempting to sort of explain Russia or Ukraine or the Soviet uh, uh, aftermath or the post-Soviet mentality to Western readers. And I think that's, that's um, valuable to both sides. Yeah, and it is, it, it's part of a larger trend of where, you know, there's less and less power and, and money and certainty in the profession of journalism. It's left to people who just couldn't do anything else and feel it very deeply. And I think on a, on a regional level, it sounds like what you're saying. Like, these are people who need to figure out this Russia-U.S. question yeah. uh, on a personal as well as just kind of a careerist level. That's right, yeah. And where we fit into it, you know, the sort of schizophrenia of being of two cultures... It, it goes against a pretty fundamental thing in journalism where, as you said earlier, you're supposed to sort of cycle through different beats or locations or cities. And, and I know a couple of the, the kinds of journalists that I described, uh, you know, from who were born and partly raised in the Soviet Union, tried to uh, report, say, you know, uh, uh, the U.S. elections in the South. And they had a really good time, but they I still find them back at Porter Pub in Kiev, you know either because their editors, you know, send them out and say, hey, you know, Kiev is, is blowing up again or Russia is back in the news, get over there. But I think it's also, they're also happy to be there. And they're also um, excited that uh, their particular knowledge of both cultures uh, helps them and allows them to serve as this kind of bridge. How long were you in Moscow? Seven years as a journalist and seven years as a baby. Okay. That's the, and, and then and then the itch, <laughs> and you yeah. gotta go. Yeah. So you left Moscow after seven years as a journalist baby, uh, and you came to Berlin. Yeah, that's right. Uh, why? I mean, I guess you were sort of sent here by time on some level. Yeah, um, they they um they said they could no longer really afford a, a Moscow correspondent, um, or they certainly couldn't promise me any any um, uh, improvements to my to my kind of career status. Uh, if I just stuck to Moscow, they said, we want you to also cover the European Union uh, and you should move to the European Union if, if you want to have a future um, at this magazine, right? As, as a staffer. Yeah. Um, and, and, I, I said, and I said, sure, yeah, why not? I should not elide uh, the stuff that went down in, in Moscow after after you came on with time, which is, you know, my favorite kind of story in journalism, which is, you know, some some guy starts on a really shitty contract as a freelancer that people are skeptical about and then just through sheer force of, of hustle and good writing becomes uh, sort of, you know, last person standing in in the <laughs> correspondent ranks of, uh, of of this great magazine. Your rise has been impressive. Uh, and I think Thank this... You. this One of a few standing. There, there are still some some old guard who have, who have survived as foreign correspondents, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's dwindling ranks. And this move to New York is, is uh, just another kind of step in that progression. So I take a lot of personal pride, completely unearned, in watching you do what you do. Thank but you. Berlin, for you, uh, you had lived here for a year before. What's your experience of just kind of living here and what's your Berlin time like? It's it's been um, yeah varied. Uh, you know, I've I've developed an amazing uh, group of friends here. Of course, I've gotten married. I've had a, had a child. I met my wife within the first year of of moving to Berlin, but uh, I've always been sort of halfway here, especially in 2014. So I moved uh, from Moscow to Berlin in 2013, and then 2014, Ukraine you know is on fire. There's the revolution. Crimea is annexed. The war starts. So for that year, I was form my formal address was Berlin, but I had an empty apartment, and I was actually living in in dodgy hotels um, 
in the Donbas uh, most of the year. And then coming back uh, and, you know, sort of uh, taking it easy, which usually meant buying a, a bottle of um, Jameson uh, duty-free, and then coming back and, you know, uh, hanging out. Uh, In the my, style of your homies back home. Th- that's right, yeah. <laughs> Just, and, and then, you know, I, I met my wife sort of in, in that phase of my life, and she put up with it uh, gallantly. And, uh, and you know, we, we got married, so that was clearly the, the highlight of, of my Berlin time, uh, making a family here. Uh, but but I've always been, you know, because the interest of the editors uh, has, uh, and, and the, the readers, uh, more importantly, has still been east of Berlin. Uh, I've, I've always had my focus, my eyes, you know, facing eastward and, and traveling a lot uh, to Ukraine, the Balkans. I, I think the biggest story I got to cover was um, the migration crisis in, in 2005, the refugee crisis. Uh, and uh, with our mutual friend, the wonderful photographer, Yuri Kozirev, uh, former uh, former guest on the trip. Is that right? <laughs> that oh, is fantastic. right. Early Moscow days. Uh, yeah. Yeah. All That's right. You and Yuri were in the uh, you were in the boats. Yeah, we were in the boats. We were with the the coast guards. We were in Turkey looking for smugglers. It was a wild trip, um, and and really uh, formative for me as a journalist, in terms of doing what I really wanted to do when I left Moscow, which is prove that I'm not the sort of one-trick uh, Russian pony that can only write about Putin for the rest of his career. And I think that that's, a, that's an itch that uh, Russia-based correspondents get after a certain number of years. I certainly had that. A lot of my friends and colleagues who are still back there talk about this all the time, that you want to prove yourself in another context. And, and that was a trial by fire, and it was, it was fascinating to cover, very moving and, and painful to cover in many ways, just in terms of the flood of human pain that you are you're faced with every day on on the on the job while you're out reporting in whatever you know Serbia on some train tracks where families are just walking through Europe, um, yeah. So so that will definitely linger in my memory of uh, the Berlin uh, stint. I think over beers we had discovered yet another commonality, which is that at various times when the magazine uh, had offered Berlin. We both counter-offered with something with much mm-hmm. better weather, <laughs> right? That's right? I told it when they, you know, they had given me, when I was leaving, they were like, ah, you should go and move to Berlin and be the bureau chief there. And I was like, how about Madrid? <laughs> Spain seems nice. And they just kind of laughed and were like, no one cares about Spain. It's all Germany. Of course, I, I, I disputed that uh, very unsuccessfully. Uh, but you had pitched... Uh, Athens. Athens. Yeah, I said Athens... <laughs> Just sort of pulled that out of my hat um, because great weather, great food. Uh, I just, you know, after Moscow, that that seemed really important. And the the editor who was making the decision was basically, you know, said, don't push your luck. Um, (laughs) What other language skills do you have? Again, you know, language, language, language um, is is so key to journalism, like location for real estate. and he, I said, I had some German in college. And he's like, okay, Berlin, it is for you. And I was like, well, yeah, okay. You know, and, and as you said, I'd, I'd already lived here for a year on a scholarship. I had a connection to the place um, in, in that sense. I'd studied German in, in college, uh, and it kind of came together. Yeah, felt a bit like fate. You are going uh, to move to Williamsburg and go and work at Time Magazine's office. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> what are you going to miss about Berlin? Yeah, the, the people, you know, I, th- I think cities go through these cycles and, and Berlin is at a kind of peak that I'm going to miss. It, it's it's a point when, um, you know, the the real estate uh, is, 
still cheap enough that it attracts really interesting creative people. And there's also a critical mass of really interesting creative people, you know, artists, designers, writers um, coming from all over the world and attracting people like them. So, so there's this amazing international community right now, and it's still um, affordable enough for them to live here, thrive, start families. The social safety net also helps um, because healthcare and, and child care is basically free. Um, so Berlin is in this really um, amazing point in its development where it's extremely international and extremely creative um, and not yet uh, uh, taken over by, by corporate interests and, and, and big money. It's actually still quite a poor city. Um, you know, the, the former mayor famously said it's, it's poor but sexy. And I think that still holds. It's, it's changing. Uh, and certainly the old timers who were here like in the 90s and early 2000s say that it's you know, completely transformed. And now there's an Apple store or two here. And, you know, that, that can't stand. Um, but New York is definitely in a very different place. Uh, first stop when you and I are in town together. So let's go out to Guest House in Brighton Beach. Yes. Get reconnected with that West San Francisco <laughs> Russian <Yes>. Jew <laughs> crew vibe. Uh, they, one thing I, I will say about New York, it uh, it never disappoints in, as far as uh, just these little, these little day trips you can take. Yeah. <laughs> the excursions into the entire world. Yeah, that's a kind of Russia that doesn't exist in Russia anymore. It's sort of... Uh, conserved like like a can of sardines in circa 1994. So I, I can't wait to visit again. I go back as often as I can when I when I visit. Uh, it's it's a cool spot. Well, we'll see you uh, on the boardwalk in Brighton Beach. Thank you, New York City. Until we meet in Brighton. Yeah. All right, man. Thank you, Simon. The trip from Roads and Kingdoms is hosted by me, Nathan Thornburg. Music by Dan the Automator. Episode illustration by Daisy D. Show artwork by Adele Rodriguez. Executive producers are me and Matt Goulding, also of Roads and Kingdoms. Audio and production help on this episode by Alexa Van Sickle. Thanks again to Simon Schuster, who has been busy in the pandemic. Now based in New York City, he has been investigating former Texas governor and Trump Energy Secretary Rick Perry and some very shady-looking gas and oil deals he made with Ukraine. I will put the links to his investigation and the podcast that Time Magazine and ProPublica based upon that work in the show notes. The next episode on this feed will be on Thursday, October 8th, and I will be back in Appalachia on that 2019 road trip to talk with Kevin Forrester, the man who inspired the entire affair. Kevin is an old friend who has taken me around the hills and hollers of his hometown, Damascus, Virginia, many times over the years. And though I probably shouldn't say this for some pretty obvious legal reasons, there is a chance that he might have distilled the incredibly high-proof and high-quality illicit moonshine that we drank together on the porch for that episode. We will meet you there. <laughs>